There is a certain kind of person to whom things come with great facility. They say this is the noise that gets made as my life is lived, so be it. But don't feel the need to record it. For a second I thought this meant that they were not interested in history, but that's wrong. Wrong, wrong. A bad reading of the situation. The right reading is that I just don't understand it. Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn. And in this episode, we're going to finally address the thing that we've been dancing around the entire series. And this thing is the mind. So early in the series, we talked about epistemology and the relationship between the mind and knowing and interpreting and reasoning and understanding. And then we talked about the relationship between mind and reality via an exploration of causation. And more recently, we've been talking about the relationship between mental habits and ethics and the development of virtues such as love. But all through these discussions, we've left the notion of what the mind is itself very, very implicit probably quite concealed. So let's address this. What is this thing that we call mind? What is it? And how do we know what it is? Well, you know, these are very big questions, obviously. Profound questions. Difficult questions. And it's going to take a bit of time to unpack them. So today I'm going to just begin this task by pursuing just the second question that I phrased. How do we know what the mind is? Let's start with this and widen as we proceed through the next few episodes into that other aspect, into that other question. What is this thing we call mind? So how do we know what the mind is? Well, I suspect a lot of you already have your answer to this question. And it runs something like this. Mind is the functioning of the brain, and we know it by studying it. By taking brain scans, mapping the different parts of the brain, correlating it with different faculties or activities that we do, such as writing or smelling or reasoning, understanding neural pathways and neuroplasticity and brain chemistry. In short, we know the mind via the discipline of neuroscience. And although there have been some really amazing leaps on that front, we probably recognise also there's a lot of incompleteness in that knowledge, in that discipline. So if we're diligent about getting good knowledge, we also might look into cognitive science and maybe then the disciplines which bring these kinds of sciences together. 
in a more practical way, disciplines such as psychiatry and psychology, which also have their own distinctive pedagogies and histories. And because whoever pokes their head into that terrain will naturally see a great many complexities and unresolved problems, you might also turn to contemporary philosophy of mind to bring some clarity to that complexity and find out where those problems and issues really are, get some clarity in that regard. But neuroscience really seems to be the root and the trunk here in answering this question, how do we know what the mind is? And all the other disciplines are more like the branches and the leaves. And I think we need to recognize and pay heed and homage to the discipline of neuroscience and all the forms of knowledge that have been really hard won in that area, because there is undoubtedly truth and insight and good knowledge in that discipline. And there are people much better qualified than me to speak about them, and I encourage you to listen to them and learn about that discipline. However, I am qualified as an eclectic philosopher to point out where the limitations are in this picture, in this kind of analysis or this trajectory of answering the question of how do we know what the mind is. Because most essentially, none of that amounts to complete knowledge of what the mind is. There is no absolute complete tree. It simply doesn't fit altogether into one neat piece. There's still an enormous amount that neuroscience doesn't know. And it knows this. It's actually fairly humble in recognizing that for all of its great gains in recent times, we're still basically just scratching the surface of what we might know in, say, 100 years or 200 years. So the root and the trunk is itself a bit uncertain or incomplete. There are very significant gaps in it. And one of the big gaps is that between the subjective experience of having a mind and the objective or scientific facts of what a mind is. Sometimes this is known as the hard problem of consciousness. Sometimes it's also known as the subject-object distinction, which has been around in philosophy for a very long time. In fact, some of the problems that philosophers have been working on you know, centuries earlier um, you have know, become deeply relevant to where neuroscience is at in the present, particularly around this subject-object distinction. And what this really means is you can have access to all the brain scans that have ever been done and all the objective knowledge about the brain that has ever been accumulated. But this is fundamentally distinct from the lived experience of thinking, of having thoughts, of having sensory impressions and perceptions and feelings. That is, of what it feels like to be a living human being using your own mind, your own interior or subjective perspective. And this is, you know, very much a distinction between theory and reality, between conceptually knowing about something from the outside, objectively, and concretely experiencing it from the inside. So the first move I want to make here 
in response to this question, how do we know what the mind is, is to make a pretty firm distinction between objective theories about the mind and lived experiences. And that there is indeed a second general possibility of knowing the mind, which is an examination of our more subjective experiences. Now, this is not to reject the objective in favour of the subjective. It's simply to say, let's distinguish between these two things. And how they relate is actually very interesting, very rich. And potentially a little misleading too, because it might lead us in the direction of tautology or confirmation bias. That is, I theoretically claim that X is Y, and then, because I know about and believe this claim, my experience feels like X is Y, which I can then use to interpret or explain particular features of my lived experience. But does this make it true or real, necessarily? Well, you know, maybe sometimes it does. Sometimes there may be direct evidence which justifies that, but very often it does not. There's simply no evidence and one is merely making or drawing unjustified inferences between, between things. And it's really at this point where we need to go beyond the very simple and often very unreflexive assumption that mind is just brain, that the two things are basically synonyms. And I want to give you an actual argument for this, because I think this kind of assumption trips a lot of people up. Uh, and I want to stay within the domain of the physical sciences to keep things neat and consistent. So the argument is this. Well, it's more an example, but you'll see. For a number of decades, mental dysfunctions that are broadly in the category of mood disorders, were conceived and treated solely around the parameters of brain health, particularly chemical imbalance in the brain. So that was the kind of general paradigm for treating this kind of problem. Much more recently, there's been very tangible evidence that mood changeability for everyone, not just those with disorders, but everyone, is very strongly connected to gut health, that is, digestive function, to the good and the bad bacteria that have been cultivated through diet and other factors. And in fact, it's gone quite a long way beyond this with the discovery of neural transmitters in the gut, to the degree that the gut now is sometimes called the second brain. Now, I don't really know how far this goes in terms of correlation or causation and what, it, what the implications are in terms of treatments and these sorts of issues. What I think it does though is highlight the danger of starting off with a very conceptually narrow view of what mind is and indeed where it is. I mean, if we go back a decade or two and we're looking for the cause of a mood disorder purely in brain chemistry and maybe even prescribing strong drugs to address it, but actually we find later that the root cause is in the gut, well, we've been misled on that most important of fronts, that of causation. 
And we've done this because we've started with an unquestioned predicate and then assumed the infallibility of that predicate, the predicate here being that mind and brain are simply the same thing. Now, in this case, in this example, mind is at least brain and gut, and I dare say probably a great deal more. So the point here is if we examine causation properly, uh, we see that it will quickly become very, very complex, usually far too complex to explain with a kind of simple linear narrative that A causes B and can be fixed with C. So sometimes it might be possible to establish something of that nature, but usually when we're dealing with problems or questions around the mind, we can't. So we need to be a little careful of narrowing the chain of causation too much in the quest for objective knowledge, for scientific knowledge. In other words, there's a certain point where the question of mind spills out well beyond what we can chart and know and understand causally. Now, if we know those limits, and we know that elements of the mind or aspects of the mind might exist beyond those limits, then there isn't really any problem. But if we start thinking the limits of our objective knowledge about the mind are also precisely the limits of what the mind actually is, then we've made the mistake of conflating epistemology with reality. That is, what we can know about something with what that something actually is. And that's a really big error to make. So in any case, I think we've now made a very small step in answer to this question, how do we know what mind is? And the step has been to widen a little bit, to say, yes, the brain and mind sciences offer us very, very important, well-founded knowledge, but there are pretty tangible limits to that knowledge. And I want to widen this point even further by now considering uh, language and sociality and how this might affect um, our understanding of what the mind is. So let's briefly turn back to this question of lived experience, subjectivity. What is this, really? Well, as I said before, this is actually not just our own or your own. It is also, to some degree, the lived experiences of others through time, through human history. Because there's something about the nature of mind which allows for relationality and for the exchange of ideas. I'm sure you've heard the term meeting of minds, and I'm sure you've experienced that to some degree, when you feel a real kinship with another person. And it might not even be uh, through language or relationality. So we can answer the question, how do we know what the mind is, by examining the myriad of different mediums where lived experience is discussed or maybe communicated. So we must include here, I think, other disciplines of knowledge beyond um, the mind or brain sciences. Disciplines such as sociology and anthropology, the humanities in general, the social sciences in general, things we can broadly call culture. And this would include things like films and literature and art and friendships, conversations in the pub or cafe. Knowing what the mind is comes from all of these different sources. In fact, one should probably even say that the mind is all of these different things. It expresses what it is 
in all of these different kinds of ways. So in our rush to cleave to the tree trunk of neuroscience, we can really overlook this point. Sociologists really understand, you know, with great nuance, that the mind constructs and expresses itself through sociality. And so it can be located and analysed with a fair amount of precision intersubjectively. That is, you might say, in the sphere in between people. But, you know, most people don't read sociology. And it might seem really out of left field to answer the question, how do we know what mind is, by answering, well, sociology. Because, you might retort, isn't that the study of society? Isn't that confusing what the mind is with what social life is? Well, indeed. And this is actually such an important point. Find me a mind that has not been socialised. You can't. All minds are socialised. So therefore, if you want to know what mind is, you must know all the ins and outs of socialization. How it happens, where it happens, why it happens, the kinds of patterns it creates, the kinds of effects it has. Now, it's true that psychologists also study socialization. And I'm not discounting that. But they tend to do so with a very strong predicate of individuality. Whereas many sociologists do not actually believe there is such a thing as individuality. So it might be important to study both. And we should notice how we can often have these funny little unexamined predicates around the question of mind that may be following psychology, that it must be something individualised, something internal, something directly connected to you alone, that is somehow or other your most essential part. This is really just an unexamined predicate. And if you follow it unreflexively, you could end up wrapped up in quite a big dogma without even realising it. And I want to offer just one little argument to help you at least consider or maybe question this predicate of individualism. And it's roughly akin to something the great 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein asserted, that there is no such thing as a private language. That is, all languages are, by their nature, social or shared. You don't just make them up for yourself and use them when you write in your own little computer or notebook or during your thinking time on the beach walk. That is, languages are shared. You enter into them as a little kid. People teach it to you. You absorb it. You learn how to use it. You learn how to think with it and write it and speak it and communicate with it. Well, the implications of this are actually very obvious. And I think they really do subvert the predicate that mind equals purely the brain and also that must be something uniquely individual, uniquely about your own individual cognitive essence. Because when you are most alone, most interior, most subjective and individualised, your mind will have discursive thoughts. That is, you'll think in words. 
And you might be tempted, like Descartes was, to conclude that this is your own true mind, thinking your own private thoughts, which you alone have access to. But if you are having discursive thoughts, then you are thinking in language. Language which is not your own. Language which is shared, social, cultural, historical. And moreover, the conceptual content of those thoughts will also have that same quality of being shared and social and intersubjective. And this extends to some degree to habits and even unconscious traits, which is a link into more psychoanalytic terrain. Now, it is true that neuroscience can show us precisely which part of the brain is responsible for speech and language. And that if that part gets damaged or impaired, then the capacity for discursive thought will be also damaged or possibly not even occur. However, it does not follow that discursive thought is reducible to this. It only follows that there must be a dependence between discursive thought and the brain. But I've also just argued that it also follows that there must be a dependence between discursive thought and language, which is intersubjective and social. So the point here is that mind, which is doing discursive thought, must be thought of in both of those ways. It's not really one or the other. It's kind of both at once. I could go a great deal more on this kind of front. Maybe I should. But really what I've been aiming to do here is to convince you to examine all of those unexamined predicates about how we know what the mind is. To widen and go beyond the sense that brain and mind are simply synonyms. That the mind must also include, at the very least, your gut and the patterns of socialisations that you've been involved with, the linguistic order that you were born into and learned to think with and write with and talk with. Now, we could widen further and further on these kinds of fronts. But the main point really is just to begin this task of widening. And I want to kind of take a turn before the end of the episode uh, into more spiritual terrain, into the possibilities of examining lived experience from an interior point of view. Because I think one of the hallmarks of spiritual people is that they are interested in this possibility and that they often see not only a possibility here, but maybe also a kind of necessity. And I mentioned that knowing about the mind or knowing the mind per se occurs through examining culture and literature and film and art and conversations and these sorts of things. But what about the vague and elusive and troubling spiritual life? People who make so-called spiritual claims, past or present, who have retreat centres and YouTube channels and apps and books and teachings and all the rest. What about this terrain? How do we evaluate the claims about the mind coming from those kinds of places? Now, I've already talked about this at length in relation to practice and scepticism. 
So they can be found in the first few episodes of the series if you're interested in going back there. I want to raise a different kind of argument now in this kind of terrain, which I think is probably less philosophically rigorous and for that reason less easy to accept because in a way it really just hinges on nothing more or less than a story or two that I'm going to tell about my own experiences in pursuing this kind of question. So we're still on this kind of epistemological footing. One which is asking, you know, how do we know what the mind is? Without abandoning that more objective scientific standpoint, or those of the other disciplines or of culture and society, how do we ascertain the degree of truth or validity or trickery and deception in various spiritual or dharmic or mystical or contemplative or yogic or even religious claims about what the mind is. Because there have been a myriad of humans throughout a myriad of cultures, really for the whole of history that we have recorded or access to, who have kind of claimed to see or experience or realize or know something higher or wider or vaster than our ordinary sense of consciousness, which in turn, if we assent to, will widen our notion of mind very, very considerably. So whether they are shamans or mystics or swamis, or contemplatives or philosophers or sages or prophets, gurus or Zen masters or yogis or some other thing, all share the basic assertion that mind can be something more than our ordinary, everyday experience of ordinary reality. So how do we approach these kinds of claims? Well, really my central response to this kind of problem is that there's really only one way to answer that. And that is to meet with such a person in real life. To actually meet them. And if possible, talk to them. Encounter them. If it's possible, try and meet minds with them. Now I've met quite a few, and I'm going to tell you only about two such meetings that I've had. Both of which force me to accept things about the nature of mind that perhaps otherwise I would have no basis for accepting. The first was an abbot of a Buddhist monastery in Nepal. And he was a pretty elderly man called Lama Lundrup, who has since passed away. I think he passed away about five years ago. So I was on retreat there and the people that were staying on retreat had the opportunity to meet with him for whatever reason, to have a little chat. And, you know, this sounded very appealing to me, so I signed my name on a little sheet of paper that was posted on the wall and I got myself a little 20-minute time slot to meet him. Now, in the Buddhist world, there's a lot of caution and reticence about claiming any kind of special realizations of higher insights or yogic cities or anything of that nature. In fact, there are really specific vows about this. So there's a lot of caution. So the word about Lama Lundrup is that no one really knew if he had any realizations or not. He certainly didn't claim any from his side. But, you know, he was a good mentor for all the monks and definitely someone who was very genuine about his practice and 
did a very good job of running the monastery, of teaching the young monks, all that kind of things. The things that an abbot tends to do. So that was the kind of background context for him. Anyway, the day came to meet him and I scrubbed up and I did my best to look neat and tidy and I went off outside his building to wait uh, before the meeting. And it was there when I was outside waiting, a little bit unsure about what to expect. And I got struck by this incredibly intense feeling, overwhelming really, of what could only be described as love. And it was really seriously powerful and beautiful, and, and as I said, quite overwhelming. Now, I've been lucky enough to have felt love before, and also since, particularly romantic love and paternal love, and this was of that kind of order, but also, you know, really different. Because with romantic love or paternal love, you have an object, you have your lover or newborn baby as the object. And in this case, there was no object. I hadn't even met him yet. Um, maybe on some level, I was the object of his love. I'm not sure. I can't really explain it. The whole thing is a bit beyond what can be said. But I'm just reporting to you the experience. So actually meeting him was very, very interesting. And his English wasn't very good, but he had a translator. And his presence was really unlike anything that I had ever encountered before, or since, in fact. There's simply no way I can even really describe it. You know, except to say it was incredibly open. Open to a ridiculous degree and very, very loving. He just had this visceral presence of really intense love. And the impression that it left on me to this day is something like this. Well, he's an old man. Maybe this is how you end up if you do a lot of meditation on compassion throughout your life. Doing things like the Tonglen practice, which I talked about in the last few episodes. I'm pretty sure he had a degree of mastery there, which was extremely visceral and kind of unmissable. And it was sort of shocking, in a way. In the sense that the Tonglen that I'd read about in books or heard about from other places or maybe even practiced a bit myself before then. Well, that was one thing. It was very limited by my own sense of what the mind is and isn't and of what the mind can and can't do. So, you know, up until that point, I think I tried loosely to be more compassionate, to be more loving, to commit to this as a kind of ethical ideal and to try and develop and cultivate it. And I had my own sense of what this might mean. I don't know really what that would have been. Vaguely, maybe, <clears throat> maybe vaguely feeling sorry for the downtrodden and showing pity on, on people that were struggling, that kind of thing. But that sense that I had simply didn't map onto the meeting of minds that I had with Lama Lundrup. He kind of blew that completely out of the water. Which was obviously you know, really inspiring. Because he kind of demonstrated, through sheer presence, uh, what can be accomplished on that front. Maha Karuna or Maitri. Great compassion, great love. 
And from there, you know, it's quite easy to conclude that maybe after 10 to 15 years of good practice, you might be able to have a kind of natural kindness and compassion for the crying baby on a long-haul flight, as I've been telling you in the last episode. But also in the same breath that after 50 or 60 years as a diligent monk, solely 100% dedicated to this, and to doing these kinds of practices, that you know you basically become otherworldly. Beyond what we consider is usual for a human in terms of having capacities for love and kindness and compassion. So he, in a way he made the impossible seem really quite possible. Certainly not easy, but possible. So back to this question of how we can know the mind. Well, it's the mind that can do this, that can transform in this kind of way. So such a meeting, a one-on-one -on -one meeting at bare minimum, kind of demands, or it demanded at the time for me, that I widen my sense of what the mind is and of what it can potentially accomplish. And there's simply no way I would have been able to assent to that point without this direct meeting with Lama Lundrup. By all accounts, a good but fairly ordinary Lama. Certainly not one reputed to have high-level realisations, although I suspect that perhaps he did. But then again, how am I supposed to know? Who am I to judge? And the point here is that that's not sketchy or flaky knowledge in any way, shape or form. What would be sketchy or flaky knowledge is rejecting that out of hand without ever bothering to meet such a person. So that's the first story. Another time, many years later, I met a man who claimed not only to be a great yogi, but also a yogi whose insight and pedigree far surpassed all the other yogis put together. I'm not going to tell you his name. But according to his own claims, he was so great that no one else was even in a position to recognise his greatness. So he remained, conveniently enough, unrecognised. And that gave him this sort of desperate yearning to become recognised, which is kind of funny. And, you know, he made a number of other very fanciful claims about himself that set most people scurrying away very quickly but also he had charisma and he attracted a select few into his fold who were kind of convinced. And he had kind of invented this whole system which was a blend of pseudoscience with metaphysics and cosmology. A system which he alone had privileged epistemic access to. And you know, I met some of his students and they were, they were okay, they were friendly, maybe a little conceited filled with pride at being part of the world's spiritual elite, but also kind of paranoid, very imbalanced, uh, ultimately very uncertain, and maybe even a bit ashamed, because I think on some level they all kind of knew that there was a terrible abyss between these beliefs, which they all held, and the reality that was actually taking place before them. And the presence of this so-called yogi was very, very willful. You know, so he did have a lot of intensity uh, and maybe some kind of insight 
which was beyond the ordinary point of view. And he certainly had intelligence, so it wasn't like he was devoid of good qualities, or even of what we could call spiritual quality. And he talked rather a lot about love and compassion and morality. But it always had a harsh and divisive kind of edge to it. There was always a good versus evil logic. And this spilled out into his analysis of the social world and the political world. So in the final analysis, it was actually very, very paranoid. And he possessed not even a fraction of the genuine presence of love that I encountered in meeting Lama Lundrup or some other very inspiring spiritual teachers that I've met through the years. So he also showed me what the mind can do, what it can accomplish, what it can become if it not only remains somewhat egocentric or narcissistic, but actually intensifies this and it makes it stronger and more robust. If one kind of puts oneself at the very centre of the universe and places every other living thing beneath, if one aspires to become a great spiritual yogi for the sake of recognition and power and influence and fame, because he was always striving for these things and was co-opting other people to help him accomplish this kind of end, And the interesting thing is, I'm pretty sure he wasn't really aware of this. In other words, he himself was convinced. He wasn't a kind of charlatan, where he was preaching one thing, but deep down, he didn't really think that was true. He really believed. So it was more like a form of very virulent self-deception. Probably a kind of dysfunction, which was deeply pathological and needed addressing on the level of psychology or psychiatry. So I don't really want to speak more about this to you know, denigrate someone who clearly had his problems and blind spots, like we all do. But the point here is you can never really know what a spiritual claim about the mind is really like until you properly encounter the person making the claim. When you do that, you can check and you can evaluate and you're in some kind of position to assent to the claim or not. That's really the point here. Now, such knowledge is never going to be infallible. And it may even take a bit of time. You might need to meet such a person many times. Even then, it's still very, very easy to make mistakes. But if you do meet minds, you're at least in a position to know a little more directly, to have a little more access to the living reality of the person. And then, on that basis, to know whether to assent to the claims made about the mind or not. So I think this is how to deal with that very vexing, difficult question. And it's probably going to suffice for now. I've probably talked a little bit too long. We've certainly opened the doorway on this question of how we might know what the mind is. What I'm going to do next episode is look at this from a much more interior perspective to think about how you can examine and come to know the mind through techniques which involve awareness, inner reflection, contemplation and various forms of 
meditation. So thanks for listening today and stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com. to the making of grief point is picnic baskets filled with blood. To it, nothing at stake. for his songs, they would be cumbersome, pale blocks like his riffs, but pale. So instead he went out and found a whaler too stupid to commit to a single thing. <laughs>